Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Joe Littler from City University of London about her new book, Against Meritocracy, Culture, Power and Myths of Mobility. So welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Joe Littler, who is a reader in cultural industries at City University of London, about her new book, Against Meritocracy, Culture, Power and the Myths of Mobilities. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a really great book. It's kind of completely uh, of the moment, you know, we've got both uh, in the UK, certainly in the States, Australia, to an extent, you know, almost globally, these conversations about meritocracy, social mobility, inequality, and the book addresses that kind of right up front. And I wonder if you could say a bit about where the book has kind of come from, where it fits maybe into your kind of broader uh, intellectual agenda. Um, Well, I think I first got interested in the idea of meritocracy about 13 years ago, I think it was, when I wrote a piece for Soundings, the Journal of Politics and Culture, um, which is about celebrity. And I was very interested in how celebrity intersected with individualism and social mobility, you know, why it was, for example, that celebrities would seem keen to talk about how they remained in the class that they came from sometimes such as Jenny from the block, Jennifer Lopez talking about how she was still rooted in her working class community whilst being a megastar, only lots of bling. And then also the kind of the way in which the the, the intersection between the ordinary and the, the extraordinary works with celebrity kind of taps into a whole series of issues around social mobility in general. And the idea of being a celebrity, I guess, is, is a kind of a meritocratic trope as well. It's the idea that anyone can make it. And so that piece was, it kind of looked at some of the some of the tensions around that trope and some of the different ways in which it was expressed. But that's when I really got interested in this this notion of meritocracy and you know began to put a name on these <clears throat> kind of ideas and discourses of social mobility that were being popularised at that time. The obvious question is, what are we actually talking about here? What is meritocracy? And, and early on in the book, you kind of give... I guess maybe like two facets of it, you know, a kind of social system and then a broad sort of um, ideology or kind of set of, uh, I guess, ideas. And I wonder if you could like sketch those two elements of meritocracy by way of giving us a definition. Okay. Um, So, yeah, loosely in its kind of common or garden, everyday meaning, meritocracy refers to the idea that you have a society in which you can have enough social mobility and flexibility for people to work hard and activate their inner talent and use that to propel themselves up the social pile. So it refers to this social system on the one hand, and that's a kind of relatively static meaning of the word. Um, Then you also have the fact that meritocracy ends in ocracy. So it's about government, yeah? There's ocracy from the Greek and its Latinate and French roots, refers to government by a bunch of meritocrats. So you have this kind of idea of a social system. And then you also have, I think, meritocracy as a word which has changed in meaning. 
which is more of an ideology, which has been used and, and well, as I argue in the book, to, as, as a means to, for the plutocratic elite to gain more power. And there, you know, meritocracy's discourse is quite mobile and I think can move through several different stages. It has moved through quite a lot of different stages in the course of its life since it's been coined in 1956, possibly earlier. I think there were still earlier usages of the term that are out there awaiting some diligent historian to uncover. Um, so, yeah, so it, it means a, a social system on the one hand, and it also means a, a discourse, an ideological discourse on the other. And then there's, there's traffic between those systems, um, between those meanings, rather, because the way in which meritocracy moves from having, it, it starts out in the 50s as meaning uh, something quite negative. So for the industrial sociologist Alan Fox, meritocracy is a system which is inherently bad. You know, he he kind of uses it to describe a social system which is nonsensical. For him, the idea that you have a social system which gives extra rewards to people who are already prodigiously gifted is ludicrous. You know, why should they get extra economic rewards? And he thinks that you know, in, instead. You should have uh, perhaps a system of cross-grading where people that work very hard are given more leisure time off, people that are given too much money, some of their wealth is removed from them and redistributed throughout society. Um, So so for for Alan Fox, which is still the first recorded use of the word meritocracy, he he still makes that that first use of the term. Um, It's something which is automatically negative. And then it it is for Michael Young as well. He has a more... um, gentle satirical use of the term in many ways i think but nonetheless in his book the rise of the meritocracy it's it's something which he is pastiching which he is critiquing um and then for hannah arendt who also wrote an essay in the same year that michael young's book came out uh, which was mainly about education for her it's meritocracy is something that something inherently bad you know it's something which is against egalitarianism and so there's 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 kind of um, there's been a move historically between those earlier uses of the term, uh, which in which it's a negative, it's something which isn't positively marked, towards its gradual rehabilitation, um, which starts to happen around the, the 1970s via Daniel Bell in particular, the guru of the knowledge economy, who tries to think about partly because he exists in a system where there's a strong welfare state, there's a kind of strong backing for people to, to move up the social ladder to, to start with. He starts to think about how meritocracy can be an engine for the knowledge economy, how it can be used as, as an engine of growth, um, how it, and then it becomes a more positively charged term. Then by the 80s, you have kind of a range of think tanks on the right using meritocracy positively and actually in, in Britain trying to use it to push um, to, to privatise education. So it's kind of interesting that you have this term that's, that's moved in a very volatile fashion in terms of its value um, that's, that's changed, and it is, it is used to encourage particular types of social structure. So I think one kind of really important facet of meritocracy, which doesn't appear often in the dictionary definitions, but is nonetheless there in its, its use, is the idea that you heap economic rewards on people that are perceived to have merits. And that is where a kind of fundamental problem with the whole idea of meritocracy comes into play, because once you heap vast economic rewards on the prodigiously gifted, 
and you have a profoundly unequal society and you have a group of people who tend to pass on those those economic rewards to their children thereby making the system itself a nonsense i mean that's i guess one of the five problems that you um kind of offer up um as the kind of critical moments on meritocracy um and as you said you know in some readings of it it's quite hard to argue against you know because it's got uh, a sense of kind of you know rewarding hard work or talent or whatever um, and we've lost i guess the kind of satirical critical moment which has been attached to the initial definitions the problems i think are crucial because they set up both um, your broader kind of uh, theoretical engagement with the term but then also your um, practical analysis of, of cultural uh, manifestations. So if inequality is one of them, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the other four, which are around, I guess, the kind of ideas about hierarchy, uh, this problem of claiming things like talent and hard work as sort of innate, mm. the fact that for some people life is just much harder in terms yeah. of climbing ladders or whatever, and then this kind of sense of like escaping things and, you know, um, I guess the kind of fundamentally untransformative nature of meritocracy yeah sure yeah so what's wrong, wrong with meritocracy yeah in other words um yeah so firstly i think it sets up a system <clears throat> with a linear system of competition which is symbolized by the ladder the idea of the ladder of opportunity which has been used by a broad range of politicians in the, U- the us the uk and in australia so <clears throat> the um opposite opposition leader mark latham Um, in the early 2000s in Australia, it used to be called Lord of the Rungs because he referred to this idea of the ladder of opportunity so much. And it's, you can find it in quotes from Ayn Rand, kind of early modernist guru of of liberalism. Um, So you have, it endorses this system of the, the, in a hierarchical ladder, which I think, again, if you, I'm, I'm very keen on returning to the early critiques of meritocracy, particularly not, not, not so much young, perhaps as the, earlier kind of Arendt, Alan Fox and Raymond Williams who talked about it very briefly in a book review but he has a very kind of arch critique of meritocracy and he talks in particular about how the idea of the ladder of opportunity is really problematic because you go up at one at a time yeah it's the kind of archetypal symbol of bourgeois society you can't all progress on a ladder at the same time um, and he kind of he says that it sweetens the poison of hierarchy and it, it kind of works to mitigate against the task of common betterment, which, again, is something I think it's really important to refer to. Because meritocracy, as it's been developed, particularly under the neoliberal period, has been very concerned with individualistic, competitive advancement. And you know this is profoundly problematic because it works to <clears throat> kind of... Um, Making it works to kind of validate and, and push forward agendas for inequality. So that's the first problem, I think, the idea that it's linear, that it's competitive linear system that's profoundly hierarchical. Um, secondly, there's a problem which often often happens when meritocracy is being referred to or talked about, which is about essentialism and innateness. And I think this problem isn't always there. Um, so it's very it's possible to have to talk about meritocracy and, and not be essentialist. But often when it's being discussed, often ideas of innate skill, um, uh, the talent which is just inside someone which needs to be released, um, it is 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 palpably present. Um, 
And you can see this particularly in education, I think, um, in the way in which particularly noxious discourses of neoliberal meritocracy work on the assumption, as actually Toby Young has promoted recently, you know, the, the, which, the idea that IQ is, is embedded in a person and just will out um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a predetermined way. So it can function to re-embed essentialist stereotypes around merit, I think. It doesn't have to do that, but it often can and does. Um, and thirdly, <clears throat> you have the, the factor that in, in a neoliberal meritocratic system, it's just simply much harder for some people to get onto the rungs of the ladder than others. So we have this idea of the ladder of opportunity that's available for anyone to climb, but that bypasses the, the very real palpable fact that some people are further up the ladder to begin with than others in terms of their social privilege, in terms of their economic, economic background. Um, so, for instance, if you think about um, musical instruments, who has the, the time and the, the possibility to actually, you know, use and, and practice on a musical instrument that's affected by your social background, as sociologists have talked about forever. So, so meritocracy as, as a kind of ladder of opportunity tends to bypass that. Yeah, It doesn't talk about who is already at the top particularly. It just conjures up this image of a ladder of opportunity where we're all positioned at the bottom or also the idea of a level playing field, Yeah, which we don't have. Um, so there's that. There's also the fact that, and this pans back to the, the linear aspect, um, is the, the problem of rankings, yeah, the problem of hierarchy in terms of meritocracy valorising particular types of job and particular types of attributes and people. So the way in which um, it can come to endorse certain positions which are deemed as being socially valuable, as which are understood as being at the top of the ladder, <clears throat> tends not to come along with the question, you know, why is it that we're, we're positioning this as something to aspire to? So there's the whole question of, of ranking and progression and how particular occupations are being valorised over others. So why isn't you know, a, a nurse or a vet being positioned as something that you've you've really made if you're if you're making it up the social ladder. And then <clears throat> on top of that, you have the kind of fifth problem, which is meritocracy as a as a, a narrative or discourse which is being used to promote this idea of equality of opportunity, whilst at the same time it actively works to segment inequality. So it's it's function as a ideological discourse and myth. And this is come along embedded in particular political projects i guess um as a couple of chapters in, in the first half of the book do you situate this in the transition or um i mean maybe the project to destroy social democracy and turn it into that kind of present um conjecture so could, could you give me a sort of sketch of that kind of post 68 transformation of social democracy through you know you point towards in the uk things like politics of Thatcherism and where meritocracy kind of fits in as maybe both the ideology and also as a kind of social system that's often gestured to but not at all realised. Yeah. Um, well, you can think about that, I think, in terms of 
how <clears throat> how different political regimes have adopted the idea of meritocracy and worked with it. And then you can also think about the, the broader social trends and social changes that have happened since that moment. Um, so I guess to, to take the latter, I would say very broadly that um, neoliberalism as it emerges from the 1970s as a political project um, tries to, to kind of suck up almost some of the, the lifeblood of the social movements for liberation around uh, anti-racism, around feminism, around environmentalism and sexual equality. And it kind of takes some of those elements discursively on board as part of part of the narrative of neoliberal meritocracy. So, for example, I talked at the beginning about I started to get interested in meritocracy in the 2000s. And that's that was a moment when it's kind of like the zenith of neoliberal meritocracy, I think, in some ways, because it's a moment when the idea that anyone can make it regardless of their um, background, regardless of their ethnicity uh, and their gender, is really being quite heavily pushed in popular culture and discourse. Yeah, and it's not quite the same now. Um, I think it's it's that discourse has, has moved in in particular ways after the financial crash two thousand and seven eight. So you can see how that that narrative has changed, and politicians such as. David Cameron, Theresa May have increasingly referred to the fact that it is more difficult for people to progress up the social ladder. Um, and in the book, I call these neoliberal justice narratives because they recognise injustice and what they do is prescribe corporate solutions for inequality, basically. So I'm very interested in how meritocracy as a neoliberal discourse mutates. It doesn't just say the same thing it offers different versions of itself. It offers different versions of the narrative that says everyone has can have equality of opportunity, if only. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so, yeah, so part of the project of the book is really tracing how those narratives have changed. Um, and I'm quite interested as part of that in how this idea of what I call a kind of meritocratic deficit is conjured up. Um, which is loosely the argument that some people face conditions of injustice, um, such as women, such as people who aren't white. And they they are positioned as being able to make it as well as long as they work extra hard. Yeah? So in a sense, they face this, this double egalitarian deficit, this double meritocratic deficit, where not only are they positioned further down the ladder to start with, but they are encouraged to work twice as hard to get up it which is kind of exhausting and usually impossible. So, so I'm interested in how politicians have, have kind of negotiated that. And it, I've, got, I've got a chapter in the book where I look at how politicians in the UK have negotiated that, which I think is, is really interesting if you can drill down into the specifics of it. Um, because you can see, so for example, uh, Margaret Thatcher appeals very much to a kind of class mobility. You, know, you can think about how the, the kind of stereotypes that are bound at the time of Thatcherism are around the yuppie. Um, it's like Harry Enfield's character, loads of money, a working class guy who makes lots of dosh. It's all about kind of economic mobility and being able to show you at the top of the ladder through your consumer spending. 
So it's a very kind of specific articulation of meritocracy at that time. And it's one that's also uh, designed to appeal to women in particular, women as consumers, um, whilst at the same time it's quite socially traditional and um, moralistic. And then that narrative kind of mutates. So by the time you get to Tony Blair, who is one of the the, the politicians in the modern era, to, to use the word meritocracy incredibly frequently, even more than Theresa May, um, you have, under Blairism, you have a more socially liberal version of meritocracy, um, whereby feminism and anti-racism um, are embraced as long as they are compatible loosely with neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of socially liberal version of, of meritocracy where you have um, collective provision being pushed for early years. But after that, in people's adult lives, um, they are you know, abandoned to the market loosely and the kind of the systems of social welfare notoriously um, that were there in, in the 50s are being snipped away and privatised by Labour just as they were under Thatcher, which is why Thatcher says that Blair is one of her greatest success stories. So, so kind of neoliberal meritocracy changes in its register. And then I think by the time you get to so David Cameron, and who has promotes this idea of an aspiration nation, um, it, it's changing again. So then you have very much this, oh, this discourse, uh, which is more moralistic, um, which is more punitive, in many ways, which is making a distinction between strivers and skivers. So it becomes a moral obligation to climb the ladder. Yeah. And if you don't, you're a, you're not only a loser, you're letting down your family, you're letting down society, you know, and you need to be castigated for it. So that's kind of when the, the very vindictive element of, of neoliberal meritocracy really takes off, I think, and uh, austerity. And then again, with, with Theresa May, when she first came to power, um, she very much wanted to offer a kind of red Toryism that was different, and and um, you know then the, the Sun famously calls her what her offer one of of May retocracy. Yeah, so she's her with the, the speech she makes at the, the beginning of becoming prime minister is all about you know how she's going to help the the poor on the council estates, how she's going to make sure that that black people have just as much opportunities as white people, how she's going to make it easier for mothers. But it's all prescribing very individualistic, capitalistic, competitive solutions to those problems of inequality again. So, yeah, so I was interested in how meritocracy mutates as a political discourse, as a you know, kind of structure of feeling. And that kind of closes the first half of the book. And it's interesting, obviously, you reference structures of feeling. And it strikes me that the second half of the book is the other side of that project of cultural studies, which is to analyse how these um, political projects and discourses manifest themselves in our kind of everyday lives. Um, and there's a whole bunch of examples that you use in, in different ways. Um, and I mean, we, we can sort of jump around these, but um, maybe we could start by thinking about uh, one of the things you gestured towards, which is essentially the top of the ladder um, in the meritocratic metaphor being untouched by any of these social changes. And you use examples from things like the British Royal Family or the TV show The Apprentice, um, you know, just got British and, and American versions, Downton Abbey, which has been this really successful uh, export um, 
for the UK television industry, but all have, I guess, a kind of um, a mode of meritocracy that essentially reinforces um, elites' positions. And you use this term, kind of norm-core elites. So it'd be nice to hear a bit about, I guess, the kind of uh, the story of, of meritocracy as a kind of reactionary moment within contemporary culture. Yeah. Um, I think I was partly interested in including those types of case studies from you know popular culture because meritocracy has been discussed kind of interestingly I think in the academic literature so there's a lot of attention in education studies in particular on its meaning um, there's also quite a lot of interesting work in terms of social mobility studies and sociology particularly in the states but I thought that one one place where it really seemed to um, be kind of lacking sustained investigation was in terms of its, its circulation in popular discourse and popular culture in any kind of, you know, detailed way. Um, and I was also interested in its, its genealogies as well, because they, you know, the, the first half of the book is devoted to that, to thinking about genealogies of the term, because they haven't been talked about. Um, in any kind of sustained detail, I think, either. You know, there are, there's quite a lot of work on Michael Young, but it tends to stop there, and a lot of the earlier precursors are bypassed on the whole. So that's what I was interested in doing. And um, I, I think it's also interesting because if you if you kind of move back for those genealogies, there are a lot of, kind of earlier stories you could tell, and I'd quite like to work on extending it some, some time in thinking about kind of transnational linkages of meritocracy in the past as well as in the present but yeah so the second part of the book is all about what I call parables of progress so how media media narratives in particular um, and and cultural forms of cultural production uh, encourage us to to think about meritocracy as offering uh, examples of progress and the particular particular narratives and stories are spotlighted um, as as being emblematic of meritocratic success, so so yeah. So in terms of the rich, um, I was interested in how the rich uh, use discourses of meritocracy to justify their position, um, and I was interested in how what I call there's this there's this kind of particular mode of self presentation by the rich of themselves as just being like us, as being normal, as being ordinary, um, and in particular, in terms of them working very hard. Yeah, this is something Seamus Khan also talks talks about in his great book Privilege, when he's talking about elite pupils at a kind of upstate New York school and how they have to show, carefully calibrate the types of work that they do and show that they're working hard but not too hard. But it's kind of it's it's similar in a way to kind of upper echelons of the elite in in media discourse. I think in Britain. Um, so, for example, I was interested in how um, CEOs in particular uh, publish narratives of, and autobiographies of, of how they made it. Um, and you can see it in The Apprentice, is, as, you, as you mentioned, is a very emblematic example of this. So you have people, you know, some people like Alan Sugar, who did kind of work their way up through the social system in a more convincing way. And then you have other people like Trump, who got given billions to start with, so obviously didn't. Um, but both of them use this narrative of deserving it through their incredible hard work. Yeah. So this narrative that the rich deserve to be there because they have worked in a, a savvy, uh, entrepreneurial and sustained way. 
is, is really common. And I, I was very interested in that. And I was, I was interested in how um, that kind of functions as well in terms of narratives, media narratives, um, such as such as Downton. So Downton is very interesting because it's presenting a version of the past, but it's also it's also not an accident that this story of extreme wealth and extreme poverty is, is hugely popular in the present. Um, and there's a lot of ways in which the rich are figured in that as, as deserving their wealth. You know, they're figured as kind parents a lot of the time. Um, and they're figured as also interestingly as kind of actively working in entrepreneurial fashions to deserve their wealth in a way that isn't always strictly historically accurate, but which maps onto the ways in which the rich present themselves in the present. Um, so, yeah, so I'm kind of interested in how rich mobilized discourses of, of being worth it as, as, as a way to justify their billions why do you hate Matt Damon? <laughs> okay, so the second, the first chapter is about class, pretty much. <laughs> and the second chapter is more about the racialization of meritocracy. And the, the third chapter in part two is about gender. So why do I hate Matt Damon? <laughs> I don't hate Matt Damon, but I was very interested in how um, the, uh, this it, um, kind of scandal blew up around Matt Damon. <laughs> Actually, there's been several scandals. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but this one was about a, a TV show that he co-presented with Ben Affleck called Project Greenlight, um, which is an HBO series, which is a reality show designed to help wannabe film directors and producers break into the industry of Hollywood, which is you know notoriously guarded, difficult to get into. So in many ways, this TV show is offering a kind of meritocratic bubble of possibility and opportunity for its contestants to work within. Um, and there was there have been several series of Project Greenlight, and the the first there was a problem by the end of the the, the second series because they it became clear that out of all the contestants by the end, they were basically a bunch of white men being interviewed and judged by a bunch of white men. So, you know, it's, it's very recognisable in terms of the scandal that's blown up at the moment around Weinstein and Hollywood and rich white men being in power. Um, but Project Greenlight came back for a third series uh, more recently in 2015, and they were very anxious to make it a little bit more diverse because this bubble of meritocracy wasn't really happening. <laughs> so they included Effie Brown, the producer of Dear White People and In the Cut, and there was a, a scene um, during Project Greenlight, the third series, when Effie Brown talked, raised some issues really about the, the problems with um, this particular episode. And she had a problem because she thought that the only person of colour in this script is a prostitute. And, you know, you perhaps need to think about who you're choosing as a director as well and what their background is. Perhaps she just, you know, very carefully raised the, the point that you might take this into consideration. And Matt Damon <clears throat> talked across her. Um, he white-splained or mansplained or Damon-splained, as the phrase that emerged, put it. Uh, he talked across her and said, that's not how you do diversity. You don't do diversity in, in film production. You do it later on in casting. And this scene where 
he talked across her and she just afterwards she just goes oh okay it, it got um it went viral basically in the states and there were loads of um kind of tweets in particular about it with the hashtag damon splaining kind of comedy tweets saying um i know i hope matt damon can tell me why the cage bird sings uh, i need to get I need to ring Matt Damon up and get him to recommend a good stylist for my dreads, that kind of thing. So it became this kind of um, widely mocked incident, but also kind of the telling incident of the way in which Merritt was being racialized. Because afterwards, when he apologized, um, he said, I, 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 I apologize if I have offended anyone, but we need to employ people on the basis of merit. So all of the issues around the kind of white privilege and um, kind of gender privilege that are in, were ingrained in that and were so palpable early on to so many people in the series were being by, being bypassed and pushed aside by him and even pushed aside in his, his apology. So in that chapter, I, I looked at that. I looked at that as, as a way into talking about how merit is racialized and referred it um, back not only to the, the film industry, but also to other institutional issues around racialization, such as education, uh, Harvard's admission policies, for example. And um, then I also was interested in it in a way in which that racialization was being challenged now, um, because part of why I think it's important to think about meritocracy as a discourse which affects what people think about how society is organized and how power functions is also another part of that also is also the fact that it can be changed yeah it's quite live it's quite it's quite mutable it can be contested so i was interested in how this this discourse of racialized meritocracy it can be challenged can be confronted and what some of the you know potential and limitations of that might be so that's where that chapter ended up and I guess the logical thing then is is the comparison with gender, um, and you use I guess a kind of uh, a figure that's emerged this uh, muntrepreneur. Uh, mm-hmm. Although there are kind of like is it three different uh, kind of ways of pronouncing that? Yeah, um, so, muntrepreneur. So what is the mompreneur? Okay, um, and what does that tell us about the relationship between gender and meritocracy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the mumpreneur is the, the, the is a trope, yeah, um, or a social type, and it refers to a woman who is a mother and who works at home, basically uh, setting up a business from her kitchen table while her kid crawls beneath it. So this 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 kind of trope has and um, this idea has been popularised over the past couple of decades. Um, there's now a Daily Mail Mumpreneur of the Year competition. Annabelle Carmel, who uh, is kind of famous for her kids' recipe books, also published a book called Mumpreneur, which is designed to help you think about how you might balance kids with setting up your own business. And there's a kind of whole rash of um, books and and novels, um, kind of chicklet books, chicklets that have grown up into hens, henlets, uh, henlet books that are are talking about how mothers balance these, these contradictory issues. And I was, kind of, I was really interested in how mumpreneurs are being pushed as a solution, basically. They're being pushed as a meritocratic solution, as a way in which you can take um, gender difficulty and use it as a means of pushing yourself up the ladder. And how this is very, very widely celebrated in women's magazines, in you know, Sunday supplements, um, as well as in, in tabloids like the Daily Mail. 
um, as, as a marker of success, as a marker of very possible and very glamorous success. Um, but obviously, if you drill down into it a bit more, as some people um, like Carol Ekin-Smith has done some really great kind of quantitative survey work on real-life monopreneurs, the story is less rosy. And it tends to be women who have considerable financial capital to begin with who are able to do this and who can you know, park their kids uh, for a substantial part of the day with nannies who actually manage to make it work. Yeah. So there's, like, like so many meritocratic narratives, there's a glaring disjunct between what gets offered, spotlighted and made luminous as a story of success, apparel of progress, and the reality of other people who are left behind at the bottom of the ladder. Um, and I was interested in it more broadly because it, it was how it was a kind of neoliberal trope that's being offered to women. And it's a way of kind of trying to deal with some of the, the problems that of social reproduction broadly, you know, some of the problems that women face around employment and gendered discrimination and some of the issues around childcare, which has still never been sorted out, which are still not equitable. And it's a way, the mumpreneur, as I see it, is a way of kind of papering over those cracks to a large extent, um, <clears throat> a way of avoiding them, a way of kind of bypassing the problem that we don't have enough available childcare that's, that's subsidised by the state, that we don't have enough um, kind of maternity and paternity leave that can be shared for long enough. Um, and we don't have other ways of working, which people can negotiate in, according to what they want. Um, and we have very often very inflexible working conditions as well for people when they do go back to work you have the right to request flexible working but you don't have the right to get it so it was a way of, of thinking about how mompreneur is a kind of plaster a band-aid for all these problems of social reproduction and it's it's being offered to women as something enticing and exciting and glamorous um and I was interested as well in how um, women are encouraged to, to brand themselves through that. So how the, the kind of complexities of branding yourself as a mother and in putting your, your, your family online and your life online. Um, yeah. What are, I suppose are the kind of alternatives, not just in terms of, you know, um, the need for a different political system um, that would, you know, give us more equitable um, social order and would deal with questions of social reproduction with regards to gender, class and, and race, but also culturally, I think. And this is one of the things you talk a little bit about in the conclusion, um, because obviously there is the book identifies you know this important relationship between these cultural expressions these political systems and these ideologies and meritocracy so what are the kind of um cultural i guess practical political alternatives okay um well i guess one part of the story is that we sometimes have a very singular understanding of merit and that's partly what a lot of the neuroses and anxieties that are bred in the system of neoliberal meritocracy circulate around. They circulate a very partial system of validation that can only praise a few people who reach what, what's demarcated as the top of the social pile. So I think to begin with, we need a, to pluralise understandings of merit, yeah, to recognise that there are lots of 
um, facets and attributes that that we need socially and which should be valorised. So I'd like to pluralise our understanding of merit to begin with. Um, and there's lots of really great work that that has done that in, in sociology for example there's a really good book called Inequality by Design which which has a very kind of nuanced take on that so so yeah so we need to kind of pluralise our understanding of merit I think um, and then a lot of this is about merit, neoliberal meritocracy is about functioning as a cloak or an alibi for elites that want to hoover up more wealth so and a lot of the problems around it, and which which make it structurally impossible, are the fact that you have this incredibly long social ladder with incredibly um, massive distance between the rich and the poor, which is just widening, as we know. You know, Oxfam's report on you know, sixty-two people own the same wealth as the rest of the world came out the other year, and it's only been increasing since then. So, part of the issues are. A, a crucial part of this is just about extending forms of economic equality. Yeah? So how you might think about that on the ground can take a number of different forms. You know, we've had the, the Paradise Papers or the Parasite Papers being published this week. Um, it, it's, it's making offshore tax havens uh, illegal, making sure they don't function. It's uh, making sure um, that... You know, I fully support the High Wage Commission, for example, High Pay Commission. Um, it's kind of using a whole battery of strategies which are out there to think about removing this obscene division in wealth, you know, which has become you know the same as the kind of the, it's kind of the new Gilded Age, isn't it? It's not been seen for a hundred years. This kind of extremes between wealth and poverty. So we need to pluralise merit. Um, we need to work on strategies of, of redistributing wealth. Um, and then I think we also need uh, systems in place that are designed to um, reduce discrimination. Yeah. So, you know, you can see this again with all the controversy over Weinstein and Me Too. You need systems in place that make abuses of power, yeah, that, that, that outlaw it, yeah, and make sure that the, the, the different norms around working cultures can be embedded in a meaningful way. And then we also need socialised forms of provision, so which, which function on a kind of non-authoritarian basis, so mutual cooperative forms of provision um, that, that mean we can share the wealth, you know, which mean we can have encourage cooperatives. Um, so non-authoritarian forms of social provision socialization are key i think are these kind of things you're going to be um i guess working on in the future or have you kind of settled your accounts with meritocracy social justice social transformation and now you're going to do something <laughs> completely different um well I'm, I'm i'm working tentatively on a project called the end of social mobility which is looking at all the current challenges to ideas of social mobility um which see it as a dead end more or less and which think it's run out of steam. So I'm interested in that, in the challenges to the whole narrative and idea of social mobility as a, as a problematic fiction and what it might be replaced with. So that's one project. I also have various other ideas, like I'm working on a piece at the moment, an, a journal article, which is about Trump and his elevator. Oh, yes. So yeah, I'm yeah. looking at the, the elevator, the golden elevator, as opposed to the ladder <laughs> and how that functions in relation to that trope, as well as all the, you know, leave EU tax haven 
plutocrats that are in the lift, trying to trace through some of the material dynamics there in relation to the idea of the ladder. And then I also have, yeah, various other projects on the go about environmentalism that, that are working their way through. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Joe Littler about Against Meritocracy, Culture, Power and Myths of Mobility.